You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. I don't think a lot of people realize that the United States has a $4 trillion a year healthcare system. $4 trillion each and every year is invested and utilized and absorbed in this huge industry. And within that, a paper published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, so JAMA, analyzed where some of these funds are going. And they uncovered that nearly $1 trillion of those dollars is effectively wasted. All right, it's crazy. A trillion dollars are just getting lost in the ethers. Some of the reasons were ineffective care, fraud was a big issue, unnecessary treatments, the list goes on and on, but a lot of money is getting effectively wasted. We have resources that can be invested into real health care and not sick care, which is the system that we're currently existing in because here's the craziest part of this situation. This $4 trillion a year healthcare system is yielding some of the worst results in developed nations. We are near the bottom of developed countries as far as our health outcomes, our rates of obesity and diabetes and cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's and autoimmune conditions. The list goes on and on and on. Here in the United States, everything keeps getting exponentially worse. Clearly something is wrong. Clearly we're not treating the real issue at its core. What is the root that's causing the expression of these fruits? What are the roots of these issues that are being expressed as obesity, as heart disease, as diabetes? What are the underlying mechanisms that are causing these symptoms to manifest? Because we're talking about disease, these are just classifications of a body of symptoms, and then we give it a label, right? So if there's insulin resistance, if there is issues with the pancreas and the beta cells and the alpha cells and the liver and the blood sugar management, all these things, boom, you can get labeled with this classification of diabetes. But the truth is your symptoms, your condition within your own unique cellular matrix is radically different from any other person on planet Earth. There are no two people that have the same disease construct or same disease manifestation. It's impossible. However, the similarities enable us to give it this very micromanaged label. And that's part of the problem. We don't understand our uniqueness. We don't understand that we have a system that's obsessed with the treatment of things and not addressing its root cause. Now, today you're in for a truly, truly expansive analysis of this and get ready for a truly deep conversation because what if we stop accepting what we've seen recently in modern medicine and these poor results that we're experiencing and the absolute overwhelming amount of unnecessary death and destruction and divisiveness? What if we reimagine that? And that's at the core of today's conversation. Again, Get ready for a deep conversation. We're about to go deep with our special guest, Dr. Zach Bush. Now, when I was talking with Dr. Bush, for some reason, it just popped into my awareness 
that I need to set up a little, a little tea spot here at the studio. You know, a little place where we can get the kettle going, little variety of teas for ourselves, for my team, for the guests. I can create a vibe, any vibe that I want. That's a vibe that I want here at the Model Health Studios. And you better believe one of the options is going to be matcha green tea, but not just any matcha, sun goddess matcha green tea, because it's shaded 35% longer for extra L-theanine. L-theanine is a really remarkable amino acid that works to manage our mood. It's associated with focus and with calm and being able to remain calm even under stress. And also this 35% longer shading, creating this L-theanine content, this is crafted by a Japanese tea master. And there are only 15 Japanese tea masters in the entire world. And also the sun goddess matcha is quadruple toxin screen. This is one of the biggest issues in the tea industry. There's centuries worth of documentation on the benefits of various teas. But today, with our industrialization and really big lean towards all of these synthetic chemicals, it's very rare to find a tea that isn't contaminated. And most people have no idea about this. It could be contaminated with heavy metals, with molds, with pesticides, with microplastics. It's a big issue, but we can supersede that when we get tea from companies like Peak Tea. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E dot com forward slash model. You get 10% off their incredible sun goddess matcha green tea. And also I love their puer, their fermented puer tea as well. They've got 20 award-winning flavors and they have an exclusive patented crystallization process for their teas that make them incredibly easy to brew and to utilize and also to retain all of the valuable micronutrients that are found in those teas. Again, go to peaklife.com forward slash model for 10% off store wide. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Listen Up by Annie Taylor 211. If there's one podcast that has transformed my thoughts, habits, and values, it's this one. Sean has an incredible way of articulating his words that has caused me to think deeper and him and his guests inspire lasting change. I'm truly grateful for his time and this content. Amazing. And thank you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. And that is exactly what we're doing today. We're going to venture into thinking deeper. Sometimes we just have to push the entire system of things aside and experiments to run some thought experiments, to analyze things in different ways, to check our own biases, to explore, you know, and to really understand the bigger picture and not just this very compacted view of science through the lens of conventional medicine, this very compacted view of the expression that we're seeing right now with, again, a $4 trillion healthcare industry that's yielding such poor results but thinking about the bigger picture. So thinking globally, thinking universally, thinking about where we come from. And all of these things need to be a part of the conversation and not just, again, this very limited perspective of kind of Newtonian science, which is this kind of mechanistic way of viewing reality when things are so much more 
than we can even imagine. So again, this is a deep conversation with the amazing Dr. Zach Bush. Zach Bush, MD, is a renowned multidisciplinary physician of internal medicine, endocrinology, hospice care, and internationally recognized educator on the microbiome as it relates to human health, soil systems, food systems, and a regenerative future. Again, buckle up, get ready for this journey with the amazing Dr. Zach Bush. Welcome to the Model Health Show. It's so good to see you. I'm so glad to be here and with the audience as well. Awesome, awesome. You know, the first thing I want to talk to you about, and it just so happened that you've been working on this for a course, is the connection between microbes and human health. Yeah. So I know this is a big topic and there's a lot to unpack, but where does this association, where does this connection really start? Mm. Yeah. So this first response will take three and a half hours. And, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'll see if I can put it in a nutshell. I mean, literally you could give, you know, uh, PhD level dissertations on that one question because there's 20 years now of extraordinary answers to that question that are really bending our understanding of human physiology. And I think more recently, bending our understanding of what consciousness is. And I would say in a nutshell, what we are finding in the 20 years of science is that what we thought used to be a human body. And we believed a human immune system was keeping that body sterile. And it was us against the world. We had to fight off the germs. We had to fight off the viruses. We had to fight off, you know, to keep a territory clean so that limited resources within the body were preserved for human use. That was our model for, the, you know, at least the last 150 years of kind of Western allopathic medicine history, which is, of course, a blip in time compared to 4,000 years of Ayurvedic medicine that said, no, 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 it's all what you eat is what you are. And there, there's no, the blend is complete. Like you, you can't, there's complete oneness in biology. You can't separate out a single species and say, this is that, and this is that. So we're finding our way in allopathic Western medicine to an unfortunate conclusion that we were wrong and all the other ancient sciences were right because they iterated over and over again for 4,000 years to find the truth. And, you know, they found that truth, I think, really good about 2,000 years ago. You know, I think there was a couple thousand years of iteration towards that process. But man, when Ayurveda really matured and when Chinese traditional medicine matured a couple thousand years ago, it hasn't changed because it didn't need to change because it worked. And it had to do with exactly what you're asking is what's the connection between a microbe and a human and how are those related at the health level? And so the train theory of life has really leapt forward in the last 10 years in particular in the basic science. It has had almost zero impact on our public health perspective, right? right? Our public health perspective the last two years really remains dominated by the philosophy of Louis Pasteur in the 1880s and 1840s to 1880s that science of Pasteur developed the whole theory on germ theory and said humans are always under attack from disease. And, you know, the other scientists that were kind of in the other camp, maybe led by uh, Bechamp at the time, but he was saying with his colleagues that, no, it's, it can't be a germ theory because else we would have never existed. If it was us against them, they were here long before us. They, we emerged from this environment of microbes. And so there's no way that they're against us. And they were witnessing that disease isn't a phenomenon that simply attacks a human body. Disease is something that emerges from a weakened body. And so that is kind of where we now stand in the last 10 years is suddenly realizing that this thing that we thought was a human body is actually not. It is actually an ecosystem 
this is a terrain for an ecosystem that is more complex than a coral reef in regards to its biodiversity. And in the 1970s and 80s, as we started to popularize probiotics saying, oh, there's good bacteria, we started to embrace the reality of like, oh, there's lots of microbes in the gut. But even then we thought, well, the microbes in the gut, the human body is sterile. You know, you go inside that gut into the organ system, super sterile, else you have sepsis or you have cellulitis or you have a brain infection or whatever it is. Now that we have genome, genomic sequencing and we can take a section of brain, geno genetically sequence it, we find out, oh my God, there are thousands of species of bacteria and fungi and yeast that are in the human brain when it's healthy. <laughs> like that is super disruptive information to a world that thought we were human and thought the immune system was human. Now we understand both the human body and the immune system to be one of a cooperative relationship between many species. And so in the end, we are a, an amalgamation of life rather than a single species. And we can dive in as you want to you know, anything from what does it mean to be a mammal? How do you go from going from an egg to birth from whether you're a reptile or avian? How do you make that jump to being mammal where you can have live birth? What, what does that take? Or we can talk about what's the difference between a monkey and its level of connection to the knowledge field and its ability to co-create within that space versus the homo sapien. Like what's the difference between those two mammals that seem so close genetically 99.99% identical or 99.97% identical to a pig. And so it's like we're so close to these other animals genetically. So what is the difference of this capacity of humans seemingly to very uniquely be able to plug in? And if you want to go beyond humans, I would say mammals pretty obviously deeper than many of the other species. But as we dig deeper, we find out that other species have the ability to go there too. The octopus being a good example. And octopi have this intense connection uh, to this higher conscious whales, dolphins. And even in, in our you know, land animals, looking at dogs, cats, and their relationship to the human consciousness and psyche, emotional field, all these things. And so excitingly, the microbes have a foundational role in something seemingly as disparate as the immune system human reproductivity and consciousness all coming back to the microbes at this point. That's so remarkable. You know, I'm just sitting here in awe listening to this because we're so wonderful and amazing and, mm -hmm. you know, but at the same time, we can be very limited in our thinking. And this was one of the things that really opened my mind up even further to this relationship with viruses, for example, being a catalyst from going from laying eggs externally to having a live birth, viruses, you know, these and I want to ask you about this as well, after, right after the statement, because, you know, even if we look at something, we might think that our blood is sterile, the vast amount of viruses that and virus particles that are in and on our bodies, but also just, again, viruses with the human genome sequencing, finding that a part of our genome itself is viral. And so we've got that aspect. But one of the things that really got me that I dug into more the past two years was the theories around how our immune system evolved. And the biggest theory, the leading theory, is that our immune system itself is basically a virus or a conglomeration of viruses that faced off against other viruses in order to create this kind of hyper-intelligent complex immune system that we have. So the question I want to ask you is, what is our immune system? You know, I mentioned mm -hmm. our blood having different bacteria and, and the like within it. But we would think that our immune system is going to fight these things, right? But what is our immune system really? Because what we've been 
kind of indoctrinated with, you know, I went to a conventional university is very different from what our immune system actually is. Absolutely. Yeah, the classical model of that is that it's a battlefield. You know, you've got human against everything else. And so the immune system has all these capacity for antibody production from T cells and B cells. Uh, T cells are kind of like the ones that are the scouts and they go find a problem and then they, then they bring in a B cell. Once they find a problem, the B cell cranks out billions of copies of an antibody to eliminate the, the enemy. That was our classical model. What we now realize is the immune system is not at all a battleground. In fact, it's the most refined system of communication that's ever existed. And it's specifically designed to be interspecies communication. All right, so our immune system isn't us against the world. It's uh, integration. Yeah. Is, that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. There's a, uh, I've got a great friend that I've been hanging out with uh, recently in, in these different projects around regeneration and the concept of how do we look beyond you know, farming or food systems to define the word regeneration. And she's always asking everybody in our group, what if what if the universe and life itself is always conspiring in my best interest and it's a cool concept of like whatever looks like a block whatever looks like a bad thing is actually just an iterative process towards nature conspiring for our best interests that we don't even understand you know and it's finding pathways for our enrichment and i think that's exactly what the immune system does it's always conspiring for the, the best interest of all those involved. And it's not exclusive of another species. So we're not attacking Staph aureus to eliminate it. We actually vitally need Staph aureus on our skin, within our sinuses, within our upper pharynx, within our lower airways, when parts of our liver. Like we are realizing now that we are, that whole microbiome is iterating opportunities for relationship that are always in our best interest, always raising us up. And when we have conflict with them, which it looks like cellulitis, or you, know, you get a some wound that's not repairing, and suddenly there's a little infection, or you get an upper respiratory infection from a virus, is that virus against you is the old model. The new model is the only reason that virus is expressing itself in your body at that moment is because you need it. Your immune system was starting to get stagnant. You were having a failure of cell turnover. You were starting to express precancerous cells in your body. And so the immune system recognizing the slowdown and, and stagnancy in, in biologic function throughout a system that has 70 trillion cells that's starting to, to decrease its function, poor sleep, poor nutrition, poor stress patterns, lack of stress release, you know, all these things starting to build up on a collective stress on the organism, it will take on whatever opportunity it sees from a virus to, to express that virus to create a regenerative event, which is to say a cell turnover event. And so it induces a huge inflammatory response so that the whole immune system, which again, is not about warring against the virus, it's about communication. Whole immune system revs up and suddenly communicates across all cell structures and be like, oh my God, this whole cell population over here that's damaged and precancerous, let's wipe that out. Let's clean this up. And then one of the most powerful tools that that immune system triggers is a fever. Fever is something we actually now do therapeutically to cancer patients. We'll raise their body temperature through you know, heat blankets and everything else to 104, 105 degrees and then give them tiny doses of chemotherapy and find it to be extremely successful versus a normal body temperature that's, that's in a low metabolic state. 
as we see disease emerge, the, the core body temperature always drops because our ability to make energy is really the definition of health or not. A healthy body is failing to make energy. The vital body has, is producing a massive amount of energy. One of the best markers for that is what is your core body temperature? 97.3 degrees Fahrenheit is that classic, you know, core body temp. And, and so you've got this, or I'm sorry, 98.6 is the Fahrenheit Celsius 37. But uh, the Fahrenheit there at that 98.6 or whatever degrees Fahrenheit, you're in this process of a high energy state to maintain that much thermogenesis heat production. When you see somebody getting sick or chronically ill, it's not unusual to find their core body temperature down 96 degrees, 95 degrees. We in clinic in chronic fatigue, chronic pain syndromes, not unusual to see a 94.8. You know, like you can get very low core body temperatures in these metabolic collapse states that then manifest these kind of global weird everything is dysfunctioning kind of syndromes is basically just a, a symptom of collapse of energy. And so when we see the the immune system take advantage of the opportunity to integrate a virus and rev up one of these inflammatory processes is to boost core body temperature, which then leads to a bunch of turnover of senescent cells, which are basically kind of zombie cells that are just like hanging out, not any longer participating in the growth of the thing. And they're not cancer either. They're just taking up an enormous amount of energy and drag on the system because they haven't turned over, they haven't kicked off, and they have enough damage. They're not being productive part of the society. And so we, we can get that turnover of senescent cells, we can get a turnover of cancer cells, and suddenly there's all of this new abundant opportunity for putting energy in those cells that still have the capacity to participate in, in society and community of a human body. And so this new understanding that the immune system is always conspiring for our best interest, I would say that for every single time you've gotten sick, that is your body's effort to conspire many different organ systems simultaneously and interestingly, to mobilize mitochondria, which is a vast system of microbes that live inside of our cells. Mitochondria are tiny little bacteria that about you know, three billion years ago, a small archaea bacteria absorbed an even tinier methane-producing uh, bacterium. And when those two bacterium you know, came together and amalgamated, they developed the capacity for respiratory energy production, which is 10 times more effective than fermentation, which was the only form of of energetic uh, expression in the single cell organisms and so when we got that first mitochondria and then that mitochondria was able to dwell within a larger system of a protozoa we suddenly made this jump to parasites worms and ultimately you know reptiles and work your way up towards hominids and, and homo sapiens so you we had this iterative process of energy production the more energy you can produce per cell the more successful so when your immune system conspires and you shoot that fever up that's mitochondria that are producing that fever. The human cell has no way of generating enough heat to create anything. And so it's only the mitochondria that can create energy in the body, whether it be thermal energy in the form of the fever or your core body temperature, or it be energetic uh, output as far as electron pulse and light energy that's coming out of the carbon molecules that are breaking apart to release sun. So the mitochondria are this brilliant like other organ system that is in you know cellular population logarithmically larger than the human system. So our human cells, 70, 50, 70 trillion, depending on who you read, let's say 50 trillion cells, that's, that's a huge number. Like it's one of the few numbers that is equivalent to our national debt today. But the, <laughs> right. the, the 50 trillion cells is dwarfed by 14 quadrillion bact uh, bacterium inside our cells called mitochondria. So you, know, you go from trillion to quadrillion, you're, you're a thousand fold, right? So a thousand trillion is a quadrillion. So here. 
whoa, now you're 10 times that. So you're really 10,000 times more cellular, you know, population and mitochondria than you are human. And that's the population that determines are you vital or not. And so when we ask what is the relationship between microbes and human health, it's very simple. Without the microbes, we don't exist. Without cooperative interaction and iterative behavior with those microbes, we don't thrive. We live short. We develop chronic disease. And unfortunately, we, in our human you know, nature, uh, in our belief that we were separate from everything else, we've developed a society, a technological environment that destroys the microbes at every turn. And so it was, it was our belief of being anti-everything that led to the, to the pending sixth extinction here. Man, that is profound. So profound. You know, the problem is, Zach, as I'm hearing you say this, is we think that the body is ignorant. In our ignorance, we think that it's malfunctioning when a fever manifests or we have symptoms and we seek to, you know, put those fires out you know, as quickly as possible. We want to get back into comfort. And in reality, you said, you said one of the most profound things and that idea that's kind of been a thread through this is that, you know, things conspiring for our good. I think we really need to sit with that because even our idea of what a disease is, is really the body making an adaptation under unideal circumstances. Like if we talk about um, insulin resistance, right? We're, we're bringing this abnormal amount of sugar into the system that's really never existed before. And, you know, the body and its infinite intelligence is like, you know what, I'm not going to keep shoveling this into these cells, even though it can tear stuff up being in your bloodstream. So what can I do? What, what adaptation can I make so that I can keep this person alive under these unideal circumstances? But again, we think that the body's malfunctioning. And even with, you know, a, and I, this is what I want to ask you about, even if it's a, a viral infection, right? We, you said something really profound, which is <laughs> it's not that this particular thing is so bad, it's happening within a weakened body. And so is this why, for example, we would have circumstances where somebody is asymptomatic versus someone who isn't? Because that's the part of this conversation that hasn't really been talked about. Why didn't so many other people get sick versus, you know, this much smaller percentage who did, especially if we're talking about severe symptoms versus mild symptoms versus completely being asymptomatic. What's really the underlying mechanism that's causing people to have this range where the majority of people are asymptomatic? It's so important for us to consider that carefully because, you know, for all of the fear mongering around social distancing and all that, we failed to recognize the most obvious thing is that in a single family, one person gets a syndrome that is called coronavirus and you know two other people in the family get that same thing three to seven days later and two other people don't get anything and so even in a single family unit we saw over and over and over again exactly what you're talking about so you don't have to look at a population level to recognize well that's weird like if it was really an infectious disease that was highly infective and had this high rate of transmission then we should see that thing happening very uniformly and it should be exactly equal to your level of contact rather than not being. And so the reality is no virus has ever been contact specific in its ability to express disease. And this has been one of the real hangups that we've been suffering with in, since the 1950s and 60s when we started to try to prove, 
discovery of viruses recently. You know, 1950s, 60s, where we started to be able to theorize their presence because we figured out what DNA was. Like before there was DNA, there was a vague concept of germs or, you know, so the the whole fight between Louis Pasteur and, and Bechamp in the 1800s, they didn't have any of these words. They didn't weren't arguing about what is the nature of a virus. They didn't have that term. And so the words that we've put to this, these observational forces are relatively new. But one of the challenges to the germ theory, which said that viruses will attack everything equally, basically, and put everybody at the same threat, was that we were trying to, once we started to be able to isolate viral stuff and then introduce it to another organism, we, we couldn't get infection to happen. And some potent examples of this was the kind of the common cold type viruses. Turns out that horses get a very specific, you know, few strains of viruses very typically they get upper respiratory infection, develop something similar to humans in the second they have snot and they have all these well, they were collecting snot and they were having the horses breathe into these huge bags to collect all of their respiratory secretions, which were understood to carry these viruses and everything else. And so they're collecting snot and all this and and then have another horse go breathe that air, introduce the snot into their nose. And we could never get the damn horse to be sick. So we cannot go and figure out who to infect with this thing. We, we, we don't seem to be able to transit it as we've been told it works. Another big example of this is HIV. We assumed HIV is super, you know, penetrant and you start to get sexual transmission of this disease, has high penetrance, goes in this iterative process towards AIDS. And so if you pick up any document, any peer-reviewed science journal article that's studying HIV, the first sentence tends to be HIV is the virus that causes the syndrome of AIDS. And yet that sentence never has a reference on it in any article ever because not once have we actually been able to show that an hiv virus causes aids we've tried infecting monkeys and humans like it just does not cause the situation so hiv is being expressed in the context of what we would call a syndrome of aids but it we can't prove any causation it just doesn't work and a big study that was just done again genomic sequencing is changing the game because we're getting all kinds of new new really disruptive data points and this is one of them is that they did a universal screening for 140 different common viruses in 5,000 subjects that were extremely healthy across like six continents including west and east and so the beautiful spread of population 5,000 subjects and they did broad genomic sequencing for these viruses that would have been integrated into the into our own human dna at this point and retroviruses such as HIV are really good at doing this. They insert themselves into us and so into our DNA. And then we carry it through a lifetime. It turned out that 6% of the subjects, you know, in this study were carrying some form, carrying HIV in their DNA. And these are asymptomatic people that test negative for HIV. But if you genomically sequence their DNA, somewhere in there, they've got it. And so it was a stunning thing of like, logarithmically beyond what we thought the penetration of HIV was. It's there. And we've got this population of 5,000 people that don't have any of the testing positive for replication of HIV, but they've seen it, they've absorbed it, they've integrated in their DNA, and they just keep it quiet. No need to express it. And then the deeper realization is that HIV, when present in the context of AIDS, isn't responsible for any of the symptoms of AIDS that actually causes the death. Symptoms of AIDS are metabolic wasting, you know, the uh, immune dysfunctions, the Kaposi sarcoma, these cancers that come up, some unique leukemias, lymphomas, those are, have all been shown to be caused by a whole myriad of 
different herpes viruses. And so when we say that HIV is the virus that causes AIDS, we're very inaccurate in that statement. And we've proven it over you know, 30 year, 40 year effort to find out what is AIDS and what is HIV and all this. And our very fundamental pro premise, despite the fact that we've proved ourselves wrong over and over and over again, we just can't let go of the damn premise. It's just like, we have to have a single causation to the syndrome because we believe in the germ theory. We believe one virus causes this thing called AIDS. And the fact is, AIDS is a demonstration of a complete loss of decision-making at the cellular level as to what to express and what not. And so it becomes a dysregulated expression of many different viruses, EBV, CMV, you know, herpes viruses. It goes on and on as to all these viruses that start to really proliferate in the cellular structure of human cells. So what we can say about AIDS is it was definitely, there was a poisoning of the human system that allowed for a dysregulation between what to express and what not to express. That's much different than what we see in the household where two people don't get sick and three people do get a, a coronavirus-like syndrome. What happened there? All five of them decided they were going to, or all five of them had the opportunity to decide how they were going to use this virus to their highest conspiring purpose you know so nature conspires against us for our highest purpose three of those people were in a weakened state and we're going to benefit from four or five days in bed or maybe four weeks in bed your level of weakness was going to be matched by the response the virus was going to give you and so it's the classic you know you can bitch about your partner and blame them for your relationship and everything else but the fact is you're looking in the mirror and everything you're blaming on them is happening internally you're projecting that outward it's the same thing with us and the microbes if we're having a problem and we keep blaming Lyme disease or coronavirus or HIV, we're missing the boat. The story is a collapse within ourselves. And ultimately that collapse is very interesting. It's a loss of sense of self-identity. The immune system as a system of communication, its purpose is to maintain human identity. And you can't do that in a vacuum. You do not know who you are if you are isolated. And so the whole purpose of the immune system is a system of communication that brings us into this broad ecosystem of bacteria, fungi, viruses, and the like. And for that, we discover ourselves. Amazing. Amazing. So the question is, you know, you just shared some, you know, for some people, they might not have heard anything related to HIV and AIDS, this connection not being what is popularized, what's really become dogma. Why is it that? these ideas can carry on, carry so much weight and just be accepted in popular, not just popular culture, but in scientific communities for so long. You know, this, again, this has been seen throughout history. If we talk about, you know, um, the, the world being, you know, the earth being flat and to say otherwise, I mean, you can actually, you know, can you talk a little bit about, about that, about just even dating yeah. back in time, some of these things? How does dogma happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can actually. And um, in, in a simplistic way, it's the, the old adage of follow the money. But the deeper thing is it's not really a story of greed. It's a story of reductionism. And so as an academician, I was in academic medicine for 17 years in different ways. Most of that time I was a student or training in postdoctoral work or all this briefly in faculty positions, things like that before I left the university in 2010. But in that 17 years, what I was steeped in was that to make money, 
i.e. to get a grant to fund you so that you can stay on, eventually be on faculty and run your own lab and have st staff to go ask exciting questions and go discover the root cause of human health and disease. And if you're going to be successful in that journey, you've got to make money. And the only way to make money through grant systems is to be reductionist. And to be a reductionist has to get really severe these days because it's no longer enough to be, I'm a kidney doc. That used to be enough to say, you know, I'm going to do research on the kidney. It's gotten so down in the weeds now that my grants, to give you a perspective of how pathetic this is in my life, my grants focused on TF one You've never heard of that. Nobody's ever heard of that. Nobody cares about TF one Nobody should care about TF one but to get a grant, I had to be so specific that I was going to be the world expert in one single protein that was in the cascade of events that occur in mitochondria when cancer occurs. And so I didn't get the chance to say that I was going to be a cancer doctor and find out the root cause of disease. I didn't get to say I was going to be a cancer doctor and find out how to kill cancer cells. I had to say, I'm going to do cancer research specific to TF one and its mechanisms of mitochondrial metabolism within the construct of a cancer cell versus a normal cell. At that point, you've reduced yourself to seeing the entire world through a single protein. And so all of the science that has been generated around AIDS, for example, was triggered through or done via grants that required the investigators to define one single lens to look through at this complex syndrome of AIDS. And the lens that got determined was we ended up, you know, we're at the very beginning of being able to sequence DNA. Somebody finally, after you know, almost 10 years of process in the 1980 to 1990 time period, 1991, 92, we finally stumbled upon a new genetic sequence that we would eventually call HIV, and we would call it a virus. And so we've got this new genetic sequence that was showing up in all patients with AIDS. And, and so we thought, oh, we found, thank goodness, now we can write a ton of grants and get massive funding acceleration. And that's exactly what happened. 1991, 92, you suddenly see huge logarithmic increases in the amount of money that was going to global research towards HIV because there was finally a name for it. There was finally a reductionist viewpoint on this complex syndrome called AIDS. And so in the end, we, we did that. So why does dogma develop? Because now you have trillions of dollars in medical research that is based on the belief and the necessity for that belief to say that HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. There is no, you know, number one on the end of that sentence, which would be your first reference in your first art. If that's your first sentence and that's a scientific statement, you should have at least one scientific, you know, peer-reviewed science reference to say, how do you know that? And you cannot prove that anywhere. And so we can't put that reference on there. And so that first sentence is a statement of funding. I got this research funded because I said HIV is the, the cause of AIDS, and I'm going to tell you something about HIV. And so it's a reductionist approach to funding, which then leads to a reductionist approach to thinking, which leads to a reductionist approach to your willingness to ask new questions. And so we have failed to ask new questions in the area of AIDS since about 1992. And when you, somebody does come along and threaten that, they're now threatening billions of dollars of research globally. And all those ac academicians through just normal human defense mechanisms say, that guy's got to be wrong. Like, we all agree, H we, that's old news, HIV causes AIDS. Like, don't, you're a fool, and you're an idiot, and you're stupid, and you're evil, because you're trying to take away our knowledge that would save all these people with AIDS. Like, it gets really nasty when the human psyche gets involved. Like, the ego will kick in at higher and higher levels as the threat factor keeps going up. So the threat factor of HIV doesn't cause AIDS. 
is extremely disruptive and they will go through all kinds of iterations to torture you and figure out how to get your funding lost and undermine you. And we do this through a process called peer reviewed science. And so we get bully activity all the time in academia because the funding is done through peer review. And so if I put in for a grant that says, I'm gonna challenge the concept of HIV, they're gonna pull five experts to look at my application to that grant. And the, those five, five experts have to decide whether or not my grant is viable or not. And if those five experts of HIV all wrote the word HIV causes AIDS on every single one of their 14,000 articles they've collected or written, they are never going to let my grant get to funding stages. And so you cannot ask a disruptive question in academia, which I think is the end of academia. And so when we matched curiosity with challenge or when, when we saw curiosity as a threat to the economics of science, that was the end of our, our scientific process. And so all this rushing around the last two years of governments pounding their chest, listen to the science, listen to the science, listen to the science. What you're saying is trust the dogma, trust the dogma, trust the dogma, don't challenge it, don't challenge it, trust the dogma. Because ultimately we uncoupled curiosity from the scientific process. That's what's, and I wanna ask you about this too, about what science really is as well. But that's what, well, that's one of the tenets or the underlying fabric of what what we would perceive science to be, which is questioning things, exploration, discovery. But in reality, like you said, you cannot ask a dis disruptive question because the entire system is created in such a way that doing so undermines the entire system. And there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of prestige and accreditation and all the things. But, you know, like I mentioned, this, this is, this is a much stronger phenomenon because of all the industry around it. But this has been happening for thousands of years, like with, was it Galileo? Mm -hmm. And, you know, these discoveries, and that's going to threaten the paradigm in which we live when we ask a, a, a disruptive question or make a disruptive discovery. Yeah. I mean, you can go back as far as Pythagoras, like as an easy example, Pythagoras 2000 years ago came up with the mathematics of geometry trigger trigonometry that allowed us to to come upon stumble upon a new reality that the earth wasn't flat it was super disruptive information 2000 years ago 100 percent people knew that earth was flat we weren't falling off of it so it certainly wasn't a ball because we would just fall off the bottom of it so we we didn't understand gravity we didn't understand any of these things that would allow a spherical planet to exist and so we had this model in our heads collectively of flat planet pythagoras comes around and said dude so that's not working math doesn't work out this thing is freaking around here we are 2000 years later and we ha have a thriving, in fact, growing over, especially over the last five years, a growing flat earth society. 2000 years, we still have very- Still hanging on. They're hanging on to the belief <laughs> that oh, that math has gotta be wrong. And so that's gonna happen. I think 2000 years from now, unless there's a real change in consciousness, we're gonna have articles being written that HIV causes AIDS. No matter how many thousands of years opposite of it, there's gonna be a small group that just keeps hanging on to that information. And so, and the Earth is flat. Galileo, as well. so Earth is flat the, or in, round. In two thousand years, 2000 it's still going to be still around. flat. Yeah, but it's going to be tougher because we're, we're going to have pictures. We're going to be out in space, being able to take pictures. Well, we, thought, we do have that. We, we thought <laughs> exactly. we thought the first spacewalk was going to be the end of that conversation. Uh, we thought two thousand ten. I mean, my God, we got you know Mars rovers. We, got, we can take how many pictures look up of into planets. the sky. You can see these, you know, the planets and the sun. Everything is a sphere. The moon, except us. You know, we're a carpet. 
Yeah, well, floating I, also the belief that the moon is actually just a prop that's up there. You find a lot of people in the flat earth that don't, don't think the moon is actually a planetary object. It's actually just a prop that the aliens have put there to give us an impression of a moon. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting ways to, can, to tell the narrative about what we see. And at some point, you can lose judgment. Is it stupid? Is it smart? That's irrelevant. The scientific process is cool because it says, okay, let's go with that thought. It's a prop from the aliens, and there is no back backside of the moon there's only one side and that's why we only see one side of the moon never rotates and so it's it's because it's a fake thing it's just green screened in there for us or whatever it is so then we can start to do it or experiments around that you know okay well what would that mean for the gravitational field of something that large because something that large is going to have a gravitational field does the surface of the moon express something that would mimic a, a flat object or a round object so there's many ways fraction of light different phases of the moon you know, the ways in which the, the light shines across a waning moon and you can suddenly see the definition of craters and you can see all this definition. You can see uh, the curvature of the moon in a waning move. because So there's lots of ways to go scientifically check that information. But to go check that information, you have to be allowed to ask the question. And one of my concerns about, you know, again, this failure of science is science is not a body of knowledge ever. And that's really concerning to me is that what got defined in the last two years makes people believe, trust the science, which suggests that science is a body of, of unified knowledge. Science is a process in which we explore truth. Science is never a book of truth. And that's a very dangerous PR campaign. When we allow somebody to co-opt science and say it's a known body of knowledge, then we're not allowed to challenge anything. And so that's very dangerous time that we're in now where people have been deluded into thinking that science knows what the hell it's talking about. I can guarantee you as a scientist who's worked now, I still run my own basic science lab. It's 10 times cooler than the one that I had at the university. This is a private lab and we do all this research around the microbiome, human systems and all this. And we've got sequencers and all kinds of massive amount of information we get to look at in a given week or month, or whatever it is. We know absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing. Because the complexity of life is so far beyond our imaginations in a scientific experiment. The reason is because science was designed to be reductionist. So not only was our funding reductionist, our science was reductionist. I'm going to go into that in a second. But I want to point out one other thing about this HIV causes AIDS at the first sentence of every paper. Okay, so let's acknowledge that there's no you know, reference on that sentence. Nobody's ever proved that. So now we can consider that a hypothesis. Okay, let's, let's go ahead and say, okay, that's fine. Go ahead and put that as a hypothesis at the beginning of your paper. But let's acknowledge it's a hypothesis. But then let's go and look at the scientific process, which tells us in week one of your statistics one-on-one class or when your clinical trials course that you're taking, whatever, you never start an experiment with a hypothesis because you will screw up the results of that experiment every single time. To get a, a valid answer to your question, you have to start with the null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis is the opposite of your theory. And so really, every single paper should start with HIV does not cause AIDS. We are going to inquire here as to whether we can prove that or not. We should still be in the null hypothesis of HIV causes AIDS. Because if we get away from the null hypothesis, then we're always going to see our results in the, in the belief system of our hypothesis. You have to have the discipline to believe the opposite before you can get an answer that you would hope to see, which is a big, big truth that we need to apply to our entire sociopolitical and socioeducational systems. 
you have to begin with you are wrong and the other person is right. If you don't start every communication with that fundamental start point, then you lose curiosity. And if you aren't engaged in curiosity during the pursuit of knowledge, you will fall into dogma all the time. You'll fall, fall into somebody else's belief system instead of find the truth for you. And so we need to start with the fact that the opposite story is true. And so if you feel like you're anti-abortion, you need to start with the premise that abortion is a, is a civil right to women. And then go down that avenue and prove, it, prove yourself wrong, you know, or, or prove the, the null hypothesis wrong so that you can sustain the hypothesis. But until you've proven the null hypothesis wrong through your scientific inquiry and through your curiosity pursuit, you will come up with the wrong answer. And so, first of all, we need to live life by null hypotheses. Number two, coming back to that concept of reductionism and, you know, this reductionist system of, you know, asking a, a very simple causative question so that you can write your grant and get funding. The other reductionist problem that we have in science right now is that we developed our Petri dish concept of human with the, with the philosophy that human cells were just human. And so every time we grow a Petri dish of human cells to then go study and explore what happens if we give the human cells this chemical or, or this drug? What happens if we give the human cell this stimulus? And then we study the hell out of those downstream things. We launch a bunch of grants and we start to name it after single proteins and we get very reductionist about that. But the whole premise we now know is completely erroneous, which is human cells are never alone in the human body. And so the fascinating thing that we've discovered over the last 10 years in my lab is that human cells, when in isolation, are always dysfunctional and they are always pretty much psychotic. Like they, they behave in these very intensely reactionary methods. And so all the cell signaling is, is abnormal, everything else. That same patient that you took those cells from is not just human. It's a huge ecosystem of bacteria, fungi, candida, and yeast, and all these things that are feeding back to give new information to those human systems, which make them resilient. And so by studying human cells in isolation, we have no idea what human health and healing looks like, because you cannot have human health and healing without a diverse ecosystem. And so everything we know about cardiovascular disease, cancer, you know, everything we know about major depression, everything we know, these have all been done in isolation models of basic science. And so our biggest flaw, perhaps, in the entire peer-reviewed journal environment is that the premise that we've proved this thing was always done in isolation. And the second law of thermodynamics tells us over and over again that any system in isolation increases its level of chaos. A system that resolves its isolation becomes part of a community always expresses entropy is the opposite of that. And so it turns out that human life is syntropic, meaning it organizes itself in lesser and lesser states of chaos rather than increasing chaos. But as soon as you isolate that human being through a huge course of antibiotics and you lose the microbiome, it's going to start increasing its chaos. As soon as you take that human out of its social environment and put them in solitary confinement. We used to just do that in prison. Now we do it in the, in the voice of public health. We say everybody should go into solitary confinement. As soon as you go into solitary confinement, you, get, you increase your chaos. And it's going to express itself as domestic violence, substance abuse, sexual violence, ch child abuse. The whole thing exploded when we went into 7.8 billion people told, told them to make themselves alone. We destroyed the fabric of sanity, really. 
And so now we have 300 million new households in poverty over the last two and a half years. We have, you know, an explosion, 1,000, 2,000% increase in substance abuse, domestic violence, go on down the list. Any system in isolation becomes more chaotic. And the exciting reverse of that is nature has never done isolation because she's always expressing a higher level of centropy, more beauty, more complexity, more biodiversity for the purpose of adaptation that would then lead to more biodiversity and the biodiversity feeds back for more adaptation. So there's this beautiful feedback loop between biodiversification, adaptation, biodiversity, adaptation, adaptation, adaptation. The whole matrix of, of nature itself is constant iterative change. And the whole construct of human technology is to resist change. It's to make life as reductionist as possible. I don't want to show up as a new person today because that'd be complicated. I, I didn't have to listen into myself. I'd have to like let go of all my old constructs because my self-worth is built on the fact that I'm a dad or I'm a husband or I'm an employee or I'm an employer or I'm a doctor or I'm, you know, this or that, or I'm on the PTA and we meet each other and we're like, Hey, what do you do, man? And they're like, Oh, cool. You're, 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 you're a graphic designer or you're an artist or we define ourselves in reductionist ways because it's simple. And unfortunately life doesn't seem to like simplicity. It loves the complexity of beauty. And so we're going to have to start to embrace a more deliberate process of understanding who we are each day and start having the curiosity to understand the null hypothesis in the other person. What's the opposite of my perspective? What do you got over there? Enrich me, brother. Show me how you see this thing. And so we're, that would be a, a, that would start to build a society that's biomimicry is the immune system. The immune system is to ultimately find the self-identity of the human within the context, within the rich biodiversity of an ecosystem. To find myself as a social agent of being human or having humanity within me is going to require a biodiverse garden of experiences and relationships around me to give me as many perspectives as possible that are opposite mine. And so that's going to lead to a really clear self-identity of who I am. And that self-identity is going to be not based in biology. It's going to be based in the quantum physics because ultimately I am not a cellular being. I'm an atomic being. Every single molecule that would billions of molecules in a single cell every one of those made by a billion different atoms and so billions of billions of other things at the fabric level is the atomic structure of you and atoms don't obey any of the newtonian you know laws of biology it's always quantum physics and quantum physics says the next reality is one millionth second away it's going to be the opposite of what you're experiencing right now especially if you are witnessed the Hadron Collider and all these efforts to really determine what is the behavior of a single electron. The unifying answer to that is an electron always reverses its spin as soon as it is seen. Yeah, the observer effect. The observer effect. So what does it mean to be an immune system? It means to be in constant observation of one another in a complex ecosystem such that we do the opposite. And so what's the, the real hypothesis of life? It's disproving the null hypothesis, which is it's humans against everything. You you blew my mind today already. Already you blew my mind. I really it hit me in an in a an entirely new way that our idea of science is the complete opposite of what nature is. It's the opposite, this reductionist perspective versus this continuous move towards integration 
And it's just like, I, I got to sit with this for a minute because it's really profound. Because again, we're still harping away at minor details within science and debating about these things and missing the point completely that it's so much bigger, so much more expansive, so much more interconnected. And by isolating these parts, we become obsessed with this to the degree like, you know, um, the, the, the discovery of bacteria, for example, was huge. Like we found the thing that's making us sick, right? And then we go an all out war, us against them. And then we of course go way too far. And from there, then we get a powerful enough microscope and we can zoom in, we could see, oh, it's viruses. We could fit thousands of viruses in that one bacteria. This is the little that's making us sick, right? But we're going to get a powerful enough microscope. We might already have it. We're going to see the viruses have viruses. And it's going to be like, that's the little shits. It wasn't the original shits. It was these shits that are causing us to get sick. But this leads us to, there's also a growing community that are of the opinion. And by the way, this is one of the things we do here. We're very inclusive. We can have these conversations and we can talk about, you know, the earth is a rug, you know, flat earth theory, and you're still invited to the party. Not to say that there's a lot of grounds for that idea, but you're welcome to carry that idea. And with that said, there's a growing community of folks who are of the opinion that viruses don't exist. So let's talk about that. Yeah, it's beautiful. So the question is, is there viruses dates back to a lot of work that was done towards the beginning of the 20th century. So about 100 years ago, there was uh, a lot of evidence starting to collect that every cell exudes this genetic information. We didn't have the word genes at the time because we didn't know what a gene was. We didn't know what DNA was. Um, we had some theories as to how those things were occurring through Mendelian plant studies of how to create genetic sequences or cha change traits of plants when we breed them differently and things like that. So the old pea plant experiments were the classic development of the Mendelian uh, kind of genetic selection uh, for different physiologic traits and all this. So we had some theories as to how genes were working and what they were and all that, but it didn't really concrete till later. So when we hear somebody saying, there's a big body of science that says there's no such thing as viruses, we need to understand that was based in, in, in an era where there was no understanding of DNA or no ability to measure or sequence DNA, uh, all that. So it's an old theory, but it's a good one in that it, this is supported again by the opposite of the germ theory from, from Pasteur and that Bechamp was saying, no, it's actually the environment. It must be, must be differences in the environment of the organism that allows it to either express or not express an illness when exposed to a germ. And so he, he was witnessing in twin studies that you could expose two twins to the same risk of illness, tuberculosis or cholera, things like that, that were a problem at the time. Two different twins raised in two different households or environments. So split twins separated at birth, blah, blah, blah. You can study them in different sequences and find out one has completely different, you know, exp exposure response to tuberculosis than the other. And so he was saying, okay, here's two people that are identical. And yet they have completely opposite responses to the stimuli of a germ. So the germ theory must not work. Damn good science there. Really cool. It's kind of a reiteration of that in the early 20th century, people were saying there is no such thing as infection because else we would see it really consistently happening. And so the, I, I think those premises are good. And more recently, they've, you know, starting to integrate into that same theory of there's no such thing as a virus into the idea that genetic sequences that 
are exuded from the cells because they have to agree that that's happening all the time because now we can measure that stuff like there's so much genetic sequence that's you know emerges from the bloodstream or from my snot you know like we are churning genetic information out of ourselves and that's very easy to measure and demonstrate and so the theory that there is no such thing as a virus is holding on to is all of that is just waste that's being exuded by the cell it's not actually infectious agents it's just waste product that's being exuded and so in some ways you know that's that's spot on except for one real deep lesion in that theory which is nature has never done waste there is no waste in nature everything is an opportunity for an iterative more rich process of information gathering and and resource management and so unfortunately at the fundamental flaw i think in that argument is this issue of like show me the other system where waste occurs we now know that urine is not a waste system of the body it's actually a way in which to refine the and, and transit information back into the soil systems and all that and so when we reiterate urine back into plant systems and soil systems boom of of abundance in that garden and so a lot of the regenerative agriculture systems are now asking people to collect their urine so it can be applied back to soil systems to get this recovery from chemical agriculture quicker. Wait, you're saying we're a part of nature? It's a bizarre theory. And then the null hypothesis is pretty obvious. We're not of nature. And that's actually how we appropriately defined ourselves. Oxford Dictionary, look up nature. It is, it is landscapes, rocks, animals, everything as opposed to human mm. or anything humans have developed. The stuff outside. It's all the other stuff as opposed to humans and anything humans have, have created. And so we wrote everything that we wrote ourselves and everything we've created out of nature, which would include our sociopolitical systems, our technology systems, our education systems. And th the definition is correct, is we did choose to exit nature in these co human constructs, forgetting that our biology can't exit nature. No matter how clever we think our education system, no matter how clever we think our, our telescopes and microscopes have become, we are probing the wrong question because the null hypothesis has not been asked. <laughs> so we, we need to, to reiterate our understanding of, of biology within nature and therefore ask the tough questions to realize, you know what, we were wrong about our Department of Transportation, our USDA, our EPA, all these regulatory environments. We're asking the wrong questions. We're not supposed to be protecting humans from chemicals. We're supposed to ask what happened before chemicals. How did nature make humans? In this classic thing that I get all the time is I get tons of people contact me all the time. Like, my doctor just told me that. Should I trust this information? My God, like you're going to trust your doctor? Like, is it just a dude, man? That, that's just a woman that went through this education process in a reductionist environment to believe a very tight, narrow perspective on, on your biology. Trust instead that you were born. The fact that an embryo forms inside of a woman's womb and then gives forth this other entity that has completely different genetics, so much so that the womb has to be this bizarrely walled off environment that has no communication with her immune system, else she would kill that thing. That's a freaking miracle that happened in your mother's womb. And there's not one doctor, scientist, or anything else that has any clue on how nature is intelligent to do that over and over and over again so well. Mm. How is it that it's so precise? I, I anticipated amazing things when I had my first kid. 
I'd been delivered babies in the Philippines that got me into medicine. I was on my OB rotation in medical school when my first kid was born. So I was like, I'm always had at this. I'm so good at this thing. I got this down. My kid born. Nobody had told me what it feels like to look into the cosmos through somebody else's eyes. And that's what my son born at home in this little apartment in Colorado. As young kid myself and just curious and amazed and also really freaking cocky about all everything I'd learned in medical school and everything else and so so sure of myself. Man, when that kid came out of the veil and looked at me, huge brown eyes, it just undid me. I, I knew I knew nothing at that point. It's like there's something that happens energetically between souls that have been in each other's presence in this level of intimacy. You were within the woman that I made love to, to make that possible. That level of intimacy is insane and will not be iterated or copied in any other social construct. That is an intimate relationship. And in that intimacy, for a moment before that kid gets programmed into an egoic realm, they're a pure soul. They are just soul incarnate at that moment. Incarnation just happened. They're in the body and they have no preconceived notions right now of what it means to be human. They have no preconceived notions of what it means to be them. All they can be is I am. That kid is freaking pure. And the Course in Miracles says something just mind-boggling cool, which is when we walk around with these split minds that are protected by ego, for the, and the reason we develop a split mind is because we start to fear that we're separate from everything. And so when we believe in separateness from nature and all other things, we develop this scarcity mentality about everything. And so we think love for ourselves must be scarce. You know, our, our value must be scarce. Our own intelligence must be scarce. You said earlier, too often we think that, you know, our bodies are stupid or unintelligent systems. For that fundamental belief system, ultimately, we have to conclude that we're unintelligent, that we don't know anything, anything useful. And up in the head, that may be true. But when you look into that kid's eyes, that is just in the I am state, of course, a miracle says something wrong, rad. When you're in an egoic split mind, when you look at another person, you see a mirror and you see all of your own stuff. And so we walk into relationship in this realm to figure out who we are because we got to keep looking in these mirrors of like, oh my God, that person has a problem. And then you're in that relationship long enough. You're like, oh my God, that's me that has a problem. Your therapist finally breaks through with you one day. I'm like, really? You think that's that person that's doing this to you? You are doing every relationship so that you can see the mirror so you can find out your own stuff. The moment you finally escape that egoic mind, you become whole in your divine state, you finally see the other person. That's the Course in Miracles conclusion. Someday we may reach a level of wholeness, completeness within the individual, that that individual would look around and only see the extreme beauty of all the other souls, no longer needing the mirror. That's what every baby comes out of the womb as. So when a baby looks at you and gives you extreme goosebumps of like, oh my God, what is happening right now? You're being witnessed by a soul that has no ego yet. And if something witnesses you that purely, every electron in your body is going to switch directions. It's the observer effect that you mentioned. Mm. So to be looked at by a baby is to be completely reversed in your electron spin through every cell of your body. And so why does your first child change you so much? Because they reverse the pattern. And suddenly you see everything from a different lens. And suddenly you just disprove the null hypothesis that I'm alone, that there's not enough that there's scarcity, we're not connected to God, 
we're sinners. We have to work our way back through some sort of penitence and self-abuse and guilt and shame until we find God again. You look into that baby's eyes and you have to acknowledge right away, oh my God, we were never disconnected from source. We were born from source. We were always, we are right now connected to source or else we'd be expressing such high chaotic state in the second law of thermodynamics that I would simply stop iterating 70 trillion cells to repeat a human body. I would just stop repeating the human body and I would disappear in front of you. The fact that I am here again this millionth of a second suggests I am not an isolated system. I am in a cohesive, centropic system of witness. I'm being witnessed by something. And if you start to iterate further and further out in the universe, is the moon in a chaotic state? No, that's not in a chaotic state. All right, so it's actually iterating some sort of general process, even though there's no life there or whatever. It's got, got a life to its own self. It's got this generative quality that goes through phases and goes through different gravitational forces, and it's in direct relationship to our ocean. If, if the moon was just a flat thing, we would have no tide because the, the, the gravity that is required to move our oceans has to come from a very well-known sphere. Wait, so you're saying that something outside of our planet affects our planet? I'm saying that something's observing the moon to let it keep iterating as moon. So what's that? Maybe our, is Earth observing the moon? It's both. It's both. It's we both. are observing each other. Yeah. So the system is observing itself. But let's go to the universal scale. If our universe was in isolation, then it would be in a, a system of entropy. And yet, we see a universe that is doing centropy, which means that our universe is not alone. The universe is in, in, in the shape of a black hole that's been de demonstrated again and again by astrophysicists mathematically. So we live within a black hole that we call the universe. The nature of a black hole is no light can escape it, i.e. we can't see past the, the boundaries of our black hole that we live within in this universe. And past that boundary, there must be something observing us, observing this universe. And so is there a multiverse? Is there parallel universes? There has to be something out there observing us or else we would not have a centropic universe. Got a quick break coming up, we'll be right back. It's no secret that processed food manufacturers have a team of scientists chemically constructing frankenfoods that are incredibly addictive, but also causative agents of degeneration and disease. It's one thing to tell yourself to stop eating these processed foods. It's another thing to our biology that can actually become addicted to some of these chemical and sweet elements. Well, researchers have recently discovered that there is a natural food element that's able to help our brains and our biology resist the urge to eat hyperpalatable fake processed foods. A study published in the peer-reviewed journal Appetite found that chlorophyll can actually aid in weight loss and reduce the urge to eat hyperpalatable foods. What's really interesting is that it was also found to increase the release of glucagon-like peptide 1, which, according to research published in the Journal of Endocrinology, has a potential to trigger body fat redistribution. This means that it's sparking the release of visceral, aka belly fat, and increasing the ratio of subcutaneous fat, which appears to be more protective against metabolic diseases. Pretty cool stuff found in chlorophyll. What are the most chlorophyll-dense foods that you can find? Well, anything green is going to have chlorophyll. It's an indicator of the chlorophyll content. But specific foods like chlorella, getting its name from chlorophyll, 
is really taking things to another level. Chlorella is actually 50% protein by weight. It's complete protein and one of the most protein-dense nutrient sources ever discovered. It also contains carotenoids like lutein and zeaxanthin that have been found to protect our vision from things like macular degeneration. And to top it off, a double-blind placebo-controlled study published in Clinical and Experimental Hypertension found that chlorella was able to significantly reduce blood pressure of test subjects with hypertension by the end of the 12-week study period. So being an actual source of treatment for people experiencing hypertension, something remarkable about it. Chlorella, combine that with spirulina, another nutrient-dense super algae, which is 71% protein by weight. And spirulina, of course, is also another remarkable source of chlorophyll, along with being rich in B vitamins and copper and iron. The list goes on and on in the micronutrient ratios. I get them combined together with other powerful superfoods in the Organifi green juice formula. Go to Organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash model. You get 20% off their incredible green juice blend. Their red juice blend is amazing as well. My kids love it. Their gold is remarkable. Just everything that they carry, they're doing things the right way. Organic, low temperature processed to help to retain the nutrients and they taste fantastic. Go to Organifi.com forward slash model for 20% off. Now back to the show. One of the coolest things that I just marvel in, and it's been, it's been a rare experience, you know, as I'm sitting here with you to, and again, you, you kind of alluded to this, that potentially I couldn't even see this if it wasn't in me. And it's this, I'm, I'm witnessing a man who has this vast knowledge at the same time one of the most committed things that you've shared since you've been sitting here is how little you know and how little we know. And when I was privy to understanding, you know, this, the observable universe, that there are billions of other galaxies, you know, in the quote, observable universe, there's so much more that we can't, we don't have any, we don't have any ability in a sense to observe. There's so much more. And it really helped me to understand how small we are, how unimportant we are in one sense, but how deeply we, we, important we really are as well, because we're part of it all. You know, it's this really remarkable balance and you seem to be dancing within that. And it's really special. And I wanna ask you how this happened, because as you mentioned, you went through your conventional training so I want to ask you, number one, what got you inspired to work in the field of health? What made you, you know, interested in health in the first place? And when did you transition from this kind of conventional dogmatic education, you know, cut, burn, poison paradigm to transitioning to a much wider understanding of how stuff works? Yeah, it actually happened through birth. And so um, I was going to engineering was the plan. Uh, I was a mediocre student growing up junior high high school um didn't like school at all i was pretty bored most of the time and and uh, so me and my friends solved that by doing stuff outside of school that we loved and so uh, by the time i was 14 15 i was working with my hands all the time so a bunch of my friends and i got into cars and so we were restoring old classic cars and building cars from scratch and sand rails and four-wheel drives custom four-wheel drives in colorado 
And so we got into all this fun mechanics and it was just a freaking blast. And the bigger the engine, the, the, the more, more air you could blow in there, whatever it was. Like we were just always iterating for more power, more speed, more fun, more crazy adrenaline, whatever it took. So we were having a freaking blast and I just was having so much fun there in contrast to everything I was learning from school. I was like, I, my future must be to just build stuff. I'm being an engineer. So I thought, well, what's the coolest thing in engineering? And I was like, robotics seems really cool because like you're basically building these human bodies that have autonomy and they're doing their thing. And so that was my goal. So I applied to University of Colorado, engineering program, blah, blah, blah. And then in, in classic, you know, life-changing left-hand turns that happened, my very first girlfriend, you know, cheated on me, broke up with me, blah, blah, blah. 19 years old, so heartbroken as only a 19-year-old can be. And I was like, oh, playing man. Those, playing oh, those breakup songs. Oh, man. I was like, just like, I'm unlovable. I'm, you know, like Garth Brooks was huge at the time, Colorado, and I was doing swing dancing every Friday night and, you know, beers and your tears and tears and your beers and all that, you know. So it's just like, I, it was perfect, like drama to change my life because in that drama, I thought I got to take a year off to really just find myself and recover from my heart, which was absolutely truth. Uh, and so I needed to go find myself before I dived into robotics and moments like literally like 30 minutes after deciding I'm going to take a year off an aunt of mine called and said, you know, what you up to? Oh, I'm actually going to take a year off. She's like, Oh really? We'd be willing to move to the Philippines and help us because our midwifery clinic needs help. And as I was like, midwifery, like what's that? Like birthing kids. And I was like, I know nothing about that. Like, I was like, but that sounds super interesting. And I wanted to go abroad in my year off anyways. And if I had a free place to stay and lodging and food, uh, that's great. And so they told me how much money they, I would need to contribute to the household and all that. So I went and got a, a, a job at the the discount tire company. I busted tires for six months. It's hard. I just worked many hours I could possibly get busting tires. It was a dirty job. Um, and so covered with just rubber and dirt and exudates about every day, every day and just a mess. But loved it. Loved the camaraderie of working in the shop. Loved the guys. Good times. Raised, made a bunch of money living with my parents, saving every dollar I got from the tire company. Bought my ticket over to the Philippines. Had enough money to kind of live over there for six months and uh, birth babies. And within like three births, I was like, I'm, I can't go into robotics because there's no robot that I will ever make in this lifetime that's going to mimic the miracle capacity of that little newborn kid. So awe inspired. I was just like, dumbfounded the, the first time I got to see one of those kids come out and they look at me and they changed my physiology because I was willing for a moment just out of my awe to come present with them if you're not present with a kid you can't be witnessed but if you're willing to be witnessed if you're willing to come into the just the awe-inspiring thing of being witnessed it will change you and so those kids changed me over those six months and came back knowing I had to go into medicine or something like that and so long story of how i go from mediocre student to finally getting into medical school and was not a linear path because obviously you don't get in with with mediocre grades so i had to do a lot of volunteer work and got my emt and worked in oncology wards volunteering all this stuff so finally got into medical school and as soon as i got into medical school suddenly the doors blew off and i just got everything and so i went from being like a b student to honoring every course i took because suddenly I, I was given a system that made sense. And it started with gross anatomy where I was allowed to dissect for four months every last little sinew of a human body. And I just have a three-dimensional mind, it turns out. I understand 3D systems really well. That's so why I was a decent mechanic and all that. I was like, okay, we need this to connect to this. We, just, we can create something here. We can. So we were building cars from scratch because you kind of get A to B and know what 
alphabet needs to fall in around that. And so once I had gross anatomy and systems of the body really in a three-dimensional thing, then every little nuanced fact that I learned in the textbook could fit into that three-dimensional model. And so now, you know, 30 years later, I walk around with this huge, you know, model in my head where somebody asks me a question, I'm just, I can just go over there and be like, oh yeah, livers connect there. And I can see patterns really easily. And that's just how my simple mechanical brain works is just organized systems. The, the rupture happened when I started to believe we could change the system, that we could micromanage that system. And so I fell out of love for myself, ultimately got very depressed towards the end of my academic career, fell out of love with my career, fell out of my own science, fell in love with all of it, because at some point I had decided that we could figure things out to micromanage this thing that I knew at my core was a miracle, because my first reason for entering that field was witness of a miracle. Childbirth is a miracle every time. There is no physiology to explain how quaternary protein structure happens. Nobody has figured that out. How protein knows how to fold into the complex functional way that it folds beyond any science we have today. And yet that happens billions of times correctly, perfectly for a fetus to occur, for that infant then to emerge from its mother. And so I have witnessed miracles and Einstein's you know, classic quote, I don't think he probably was the first one to say it, but he always gets credit for it because he had cool hair and mm-hmm. seemed really smart. So we love crediting things to Einstein, but he said, in perhaps in an iterative way, there's only two ways to live life. Believe everything's a miracle or believe that miracles don't exist. And there's deep truth in that because to segregate the concept of miracle to, oh, it's okay to do a miracle over there, but you know, HIV and AIDS, no, 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 no miracles over here, we can't. It's not a miraculous system. It has to be very causative. It has to be this equals that. It has to be Newtonian A equals B, you know, equal A plus A squared plus B squared equals C squared every time. You know, it's geometry. The fact is miracles occur, and uh, we've seen it in medicine all the time. You see stage four metastatic cancer. They come in for their two-week follow-up, and suddenly everything's gone. What do they call it? Spontaneous remission. Spontaneous remission. They, they had to find some sort of scientific-sounding name for miracle. <laughs> this sounds bad on your chart where patient had miracle on February 22nd. <laughs> so we had to come up with some words to be like, holy shit, no idea what the hell happened there. <laughs> Apparently biology can go back in time. That's really difficult. Let's go with spontaneous remission. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's that thing that happened to me, which was a career that started in miracles. And then I got the miracle engineered out of me. And it was through this reductionist understanding of science where I started to read peer review science over and over again. And I developed a reductionist belief of what it means to be human. And in that, I found myself being a reductionist Coop TF1 expert, which is super depressing because that has absolutely nothing to do with value. Nobody on their deathbed has ever died saying, my God, I'm so glad I studied Coop TF1. <laughs> Never happened in the history of humankind. So my third subspecialty, internal medicine was my first one. The second one was endocrinology and metabolism because I was really hungry for understanding why do why does it happen? How does it happen? How does a liver communicate with a kidney, communicate with skin, communicate with the freaking human brain? And how does it happen down? And the endocrine system shows us how the brain communicates with the endocrine system and how the endocrine system then coordinates all these different organ systems to manifest a life. So I thought this is getting at the root of it. Endocrinology, hormones, yeah. Study that for oblivion research, blah, 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 only find out that, oh my God, no, 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 this is not the coordination system. That's just biological consequence of a much deeper system of communication, which is energetic. There's in the physics field, there's atomic structure 
that is obeying some law of nature that says this will be human. Mm-hmm. And this human will live in community with billions of other organisms. And in so doing, it will know itself. And in so knowing itself, it will witness beauty. And so witnessing beauty, it will feel love. And therefore, it will be the highest expression of all of nature. Right now, we need something in the form of human biology. I believe if we find ourselves in a whole you know, cosmic community of extraterrestrial life and planets all over the place in the next few years, okay, aliens exist, then we have to, we're going to find out they all have similarities to the hominids, our size in particular. This size of you know, four feet to six feet in height or four feet to eight feet in height, that general size of biology and then the general structure of neurology within that is the expression of pattern recognition and, and information processing that's necessary for us to get to the state of consciousness so that we can obtain the possibility that we're not alone. And that only by being observed by another will we find our humanity. And we are getting to that place where we're starting to believe over the last 20 years of like, oh my God, we're only human because of the microbes. Now we need to understand that on the social level. We will only stop warring and trying to steal everything from one another when we find out that there's others out there that are not human, that it can communicate and commune with us in communication, in a, a cosmic you know, spe- you know, species experience. So in a bizarre way, I expect extraterrestrial contact to be the cataclysmic event that will lead to a change in our humanity that will prevent the sixth grade extinction and allow us to stay to play. If we refuse contact and we continue to be abusive and lower our vibration by polarizing our sociopolitical systems, polarizing our education systems, radicalizing our children into school shootings and drug abuse at three and everything else that we do today, if we continue to lower our vibration, we will not get the opportunity to plug into a higher form of of communication to, to life throughout the cosmos. And so there's this opportunity to either ignore the fact that we are a centropic planet, every single time we've gone through a great extinction, more centropy occurs. Life has gotten more bountiful, more biodiverse, and more intelligent with every one of the last five extinctions. The last one is so remarkable. 55 million years ago, asteroid hits, wipes out our entire topsoil system, chokes out topsoil, we get an excess amount of gas in the atmosphere that gets absorbed in the oceans, the oceans die from acidification. We lost 90, 92% of life on Earth. And then what happened? left behind that extinction event was a viromic database of of information that led to all kinds of new potential of life. Because when you put a species under stress, its biology allows for it to start misspelling its genes. And it then sends those genes out, not as waste products, but as new opportunity. Do viruses exist? Yes. Are we right about what viruses are? No. Viruses are not germs. Viruses are genetic possibility. Viruses are the genetic possibility of life beyond what it currently iterates, what it currently does. And so when the extinction event happened, all those species that were thriving on the planet sent out new possibility for life after extinction number five. And what happened is we moved from ferns to flowering wildflowers to deciduous trees. We moved from reptiles to birds to mammals to humans because of all of the potential left behind from the stress of a planet that was going extinct. So in the end, the real fundamental change we have to make as humans is to lose the fear of death because nobody feared death at the last extinction. Everybody simply said, oh, 
this is the end of this iteration of myself. I'm going to send out a billion other opportunities for a new life to occur that's more resilient, more adaptive, more biodiverse than has existed at this moment. And life becomes more abundant, more intelligent, and ultimately expresses a human. Human then engineers our sixth grade extinction by killing the topsoil, just like the asteroid. This time we're the existential threat to the soil mm. systems, water systems of the planet, and through our chemical dependence in our agricultural systems, chemical dependence in our transportation industries, chemical dependence in our industrial technologies of cell phones and lithium ion batteries in our cars, all this is poisoning the planet. Solar plant panels poisoning the planet. Go on and on. Any, anything that we say is green is not green. Like we, we are, because we continue to believe in scarcity and separation from all things, we're not using biology as our template for design yet. And so we are dying. And in that existential threat, we can celebrate because left behind already on the planet right now is more genetic potential for life here than has ever existed before. And for every year that we continue to pile on the stress and believe in waste, and keep piling up our waste in our oceans, piling up our waste in the uh, things, we will lead to the demise of humanity for a rebirth, yeah. not a death. Every hospice you know, space that I've sat in, which was my last subspecialty after endocrinology, hospice and palliative care. I was an associate medical director on a hospice uh, company in Charlottesville, Virginia. We were admitting 80 patients a week uh, to my hospice service. So when you're around that much death and dying, it's inevitable that you're going to bump into a lot of truth at some point. And in that death and dying process, sitting at bedsides over and over again, you realize, oh my God, death is not an end point. It is a complete rebirth. And the reason is because too often those people start going back and forth across the veil of what we call death and coming back to tell us what's on the other side. And what's on the other side is all their ancestors and all of the collective wisdom of humanity as a whole and angels and saints or whatever they can come up with this human words for, but they are experiencing entities on the other side that immediately recognize them, see them, and their every electron in their body changes for having been seen. So we will be seen by the baby, and we will be seen at the, the transit into the veil to see the other side of human physiology, to see really the ethereal world and what actually exists in the world of souls. And in being seen there, we are changed again. So when they get brought back into the body for a moment, their reaction was like, oh my God, it's dismal here. Like, why, why'd you bring me back? You know, what, why this? Because the reality over there is so much brighter than the reality here. The experience of I am loved and, and received and I am accepted is a common word that you hear when people go to the other side of the I feel accepted. I feel home. That sensation, I am accepted. I am home is a much higher expression of self than we get here, where it's in the egoic realm of split. So ultimately, it is a rebirth, not a death. And if, in fact, we need to leave behind the genetic possibility of life beyond humanity, we'll do that. It's not an endpoint for the Earth. Imagine the difference between, you know, Triceratops and a group of humans that are sitting in, in fellowship, reflecting on, on the concept of God and sitting still in meditation and, and appreciating silence until they find the hyper-intelligence that they're connected to, the hyper-knowledge that feel that they can actually get connected to, so much so that you don't know anything, but you have access to everything. And so that, that human in fellowship, having that spiritual enlightenment experience versus Triceratops, who's fighting it out in the, in the state of being reptile, in the state of being 
you know, in its own expression of self is a pretty big jump. So I love thinking about what's Triceratops to human to X? What is the X thing that's coming in 50 million years? It's about the timeline. We'll see it if we let nature do it on our own. But there's a possibility that we decide to shift and co-create with nature. And when we co-create with nature, we get to accelerate nature's adaptive capacity. And we might stay to play with the new genetics of the new humanity that will update itself, upgrade itself through the stress that we've caused so far as we're halfway through this great extinction. We have the opportunity to create something and be a part of something radically different, not just at the genetic level, but therefore at the energetic level. What's that critical update that's going to make us 10x our energy again, hold more light energy per cellular unit than we currently do? And that seems to be right, the button we're holding right now in humanity. So why do 7.9 billion souls show up right now? Because it's never been more exciting to be on this planet because we're about to go through a metamorphosis. And that metamorphosis might be the completion of the sixth extinction, in which case there's more energy being released from this planet than ever in history because there's more biodiversity and, and species development on this than ever in history. Therefore, more energetic information, more genetic information, more spiritual consolidation of possibility right here. We are seeing a rush of souls onto this planet right now to be part of this journey. And so the miracle is that you got to participate. You showed up right now. Each of you showed up right now because nature iterated you in the womb of your mother in a miracle event. That would be the most obvious effect of centropy. From nothing came you. From nothing came you. And you are here to witness the beauty that is between my words, that is between the thoughts, that is evident in the nature around you. So if you doubt any of the words I say, go out and watch the sunset tonight and think what would have created not just the sunset, but perhaps more importantly, what level of intelligence within the universe would know how to arrange the rods and cones in the back of your eye such that you would be the species, be able to appreciate pinks, reds, blues, deep purples in that sunset because there's no other species that sees that sunset that way. You're the only one that sees it that way. A bat cannot see that sunset. You are here to witness the sunset. See the beauty and you will know the love of the design of a human being gifted with six senses, the five obvious ones, and then that deep sense of who you are coming in your gut. And so in the end, good gut health equals good self-identity. When you have good self-identity, you learn to listen into the sixth sense, which is that North Star, that, that compass within you that says, yes, this is my path. I'm on the path. And what path have you ever hiked in the mountains that didn't have the right destination? You start walking the path and you know damn well that thing's going to end up at the top of the mountain, else they wouldn't have put the path in. You were born, therefore the path got the right destination. You are on the path of life. The, it has the right destination, which is re-entry into the divine at the top of the mountain. And the view that you will have in those last couple seconds of life is stunning. And that's what you get in hospice care, is get to listen to what it looks like from the top of the mountain. And over and over again, people told me, it's the relationships, motherfucker. Get in touch with more people. Love more. Spend more time together. I never heard anybody say, I wish I'd stud studied PoopDF one more. I had never heard somebody say, I wish I had a bigger bank account. Nobody ever said, I wish I had passed more money on to my children. Nobody ever, because they're watching their own money just tear their kids apart already. 
nobody ever said any human construct was important. They only recognized the importance of relationships from the top of the mountain. And so your path is going to the right space. My path is going to the right space. It happens that they all meet at the top. Every path meets the top of the mountain of a human experience that is brushing this thin boundary between a human expression, a finite moment of human life expressed from an infinite soul. That classic knowingness that a light wave can be a particle and the particle can be the light wave at the same moment. That's to express that the light wave which emanates forever all the way through space, how stars get to us billions of light years away. Light never stops. You can't block the power of light, but it can pick moments to express itself as a particle, which is now a finite existence. And so your body is a finite particle expression of an infinite soul that showed up right here to witness beauty because the infinite soul has no eye to see the sunset. We picked this finite moment to see the beauty of God, to see the beauty of the universe, whatever we want to call it. And in that witnessing, we will ch change every electron in space and time. You will change the sun and the atmosphere between it that would collaborate to make that sunset. You will see the ocean change every electron in that ocean if you will be still enough to witness the ocean. But right now, all you're seeing is you look at ocean, you see a reflection of yourself, which is, gosh, that thing is so big and I feel so small and I feel hopeless. In your best state, you're like, well, maybe I'll put my worries on the ocean. I'll go surf for a while and try to dump my emotional jazz. I'll try to ground myself. The aha moment when you find out is, oh my God, I can change every electron in that huge ocean simply by watching the freaking sunset over that ocean. If I can change every electron in that ocean, what makes that separate from me? Oh, that is a part of me. I am the observer of that, that limb of biology that is an ocean. And this is the miracle that we get to witness now is that we're here on purpose. We're here to witness beauty and seeing the beauty. We may just find out what love is. Wow, I'm blown away. Dr. Zach Bush, you've taken us throughout time, throughout space. You've helped us to analyze what reality is, our true power. You're basically like a conglomeration of an infinity gauntlet. Right? You're like Thanos, but like a good version of it. All right. This is what I'm really feeling. And I just appreciate you so much for you know, doing the work and, and making the decisions that you have that brought you here to this place because we're so much bigger than we give ourselves credit for. And, you know, it's such a special thing just to understand that we're a part of it all and we have the ability to affect our reality. And you said this powerful word, and this is really just sticking with me, is co-create. And I'm grateful to co-create this moment with you. And if you could, can you let everybody know where they can follow you mm -hmm. and get more information and just be able to potentially put on the infinity gauntlet themselves. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, um, you can connect through in a whole myriad of ways now, but uh, ZachBushMD.com is my favorite way to connect just because it, it eliminates the, the static of social media. So ZachBushMD.com, all my educational materials there, Global Health Education Summit I do every every couple months now. It used to be every month during the pandemic, and there's deep dives there if you want to do three hours of what is a virus and how do viruses work and why we need to lose the fear guilt paradigm of the pandemic and everything else like that's there in the, in the very first lecture of the global health education summit called the virome um, and then it goes through many other different topics some exciting ones uh, the breakthroughs that we make in our understanding of addiction and, and mental health and in, in that particular global health education summit is phenomenal 
many of these i have panels of doctors some of them you have to suffer through three three and a half hours of me talking about the virome but in general uh, i've got panels of of experts that are unexpected and these are not the experts of of you know our academia these are the experts of, of life these are the ones that have observed and been willing to dismantle themselves over and over again in their belief systems until they find the miracle of life and so i love having people who have re-embraced miraculous nature around us and i interview them as to how we start to understand these complex systems of disease and health and how we might iterate something different as to a future of healthcare that might actually foster health rather than manage disease so that's zachbushmd.com if you are you know finding that social media is the easiest way to connect zach bush md on instagram facebook but uh really welcome you guys to go deeper in on on that uh, we have a incredible eight-week program if you want to really step into your nature uh the whole premise of the whole thing is you are a miracle and we take you through all of the processes to align yourself with that understanding and when you start to understand your relationship to food breath movement fasting the like in context of the miraculous nature that you have you suddenly release yourself into the fact that you are a co-creative element of the divine you are not some you know pixel within some unintelligent biologic system and so we elevate each person that goes through that to that miraculous status not for what we do but for the space we hold and the mirror that we offer up to you it's a coaching program you got a committed coach that walks through that eight-week journey with you you can do it one-on-one -on -one or you can do it in a group to reduce the cost um, but it's a, an extraordinary experiment in in revealing human nature to ourselves uh, is the eight-week pro project. So that one's journeyofintrinsichealth.com, journeyofintrinsichealth.com. So uh, you'll probably have those in the show notes that so people aren't scooping those down right now. But at any rate, um, lots of ways to connect outside of that that I won't bore you with right now. Uh, our nonprofit that takes you deep into biologic systems of regeneration is farmersfootprint.us. We would love for you to join that. We have a lot of exciting programs that are connecting community over this you know exploration of what is the true definition of regeneration we can't boil it down to regenerative soil systems we can't just expect farmers to go fix our problem as humanity because no matter how grow, good you grow your food if you still believe you're not a miracle and you still believe you're disconnected from the divine you're going to still be a consumptive destructive element within the nature and so we have to reconnect everything and so farmers footprint is working to go beyond our understanding of regenerative food to regenerative humanity and what is that going to look like so farmersfootprint.us if you're in australia we just launched farmersfootprint.australia down there as well with an incredible team down there we're in the process of getting the uk revved up too so we really need to help the western world redream itself back into our divine state and so farmers footprint taking one aspect and journey of insurance health taking another aspect of that and uh the the exploratory co-creative process that we see is coming out of all these environments is pretty exciting yeah the community is building something new yeah man so powerful thank you so much for sharing your incredible wisdom and wow so much to take part in and also again we'll put those resources in the show notes and again man i'm just if, if people only knew even just the timing of things working out to have you here at this moment is yeah. really special proof of a miracle yes <laughs> right <laughs> and uh, again i just appreciate you so much for coming to hang out with us thrilled to be with you all of you are here on purpose it's wonderful to be witnessed all of you let's go Dr. Zach Bush, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Sometimes it's incredibly valuable to just look at things from a different perspective, to change the lens that we're viewing our reality through. And so I hope that you were able to do that today in some capacity. 
And also, I don't know about you, but I'm trying to find a newborn baby so I can get some eye gazing going on and get reconnected, get my electrons reoriented. You know, but, you know, it's such a powerful understanding because we're so much more than we give ourselves credit for. And we're connected. We're connected to the bigness of all of it. And even in our little microcosm that we exist in, our little micro world, we have an entire galaxy within our own bodies, you know, an entire universe. And it's such a special thing because once we get into this paradigm where we're negating how much capacity or how special we are, how much potential we have, immediately we're just giving up before we even get started. So again, I hope that this conversation helped to spark a reanalyzing of things, a different perspective, and also holding a hope for the future and remembering how remarkable we truly are. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. If you got a lot of value out of this, please share it out with your friends and family. And of course, you can tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram. You can tag Dr. Zach Bush as well and let him know what you thought about this episode. And we've got some amazing masterclasses and powerful interviews coming up. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. I'll talk to you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.